capital costs here by still having very high rents, by still waving checkbooks about, even though we're meant to be an international financial center. So I think we don't need any more studies done, for heaven's sakes, and experts telling us what to do. I think action has to be taken, but I'm afraid that's the problem that nobody really wants to take actions and stick their head above the parapet. Okay, well, sadly, we've run out of time, but thank you very much for your thoughts there. You heard wealth and investment strategist Enzio von File, Nitin Dialdis, who's the chief investment officer at Mandarin Capital, and Lawrence Liu, executive director at Civic Exchange. Friday morning at 8.30, it's the 2022 Policy Address phone-in. Chief Executive John Lee will join us in the studio to answer your questions and listen to your comments on this year's Policy Address. Presented by Jim Gould and Janice Wong, this is your chance to speak directly to the Chief Executive. This live broadcast will also be available on RTHK TV 31 and 32, our Facebook pages and Radio 3's YouTube channel. Get your call in early on 233-88266 to speak with the Chief Executive. 233-88266 for the 2022 Policy Address phone-in, 8.30 to 9.30 Friday morning on Radio 3. You're listening to Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. Asia-Pacific markets are deep in the red this morning. The SX200 in Australia off 0.8%. Japan's Nikkei 225 is down 0.9%. The Cosby also off in South Korea three quarters of a percent. And it looks like the Hang Seng is going to open 240 points lower. The weather forecast, sunny periods, maximum temperature around 27 degrees, mainly fine in the latter part of this week. There was a strong monsoon signal in force. Uh, it's 23 degrees right now, 59% relative humidity. Coming up to 8.32, here's Barry O'Rourke with the half-hour news. Medical sector lawmaker David Lamb has welcomed the chief executive's announcement that the government may require medical professionals to work in public health care for a specified period of time in future, while bringing in non-local dentists and nurses. In his policy address, John Lee also promised to revamp the health care system to enhance efficiency and shift the focus from treatment to prevention. Here's David Lamb. The steering towards primary health care is quite welcoming. With respect to dentists and nurses, we do have a lot of problem here. We understand that we have lost quite a good number of nurses in the past few years. Many have emigrated and some of them have actually left the jobs and went home to take care of children. Now, talk about doctors. We roughly have half of our doctors in the public sector, sector and half of them are in the private practice. And if we can develop primary health care and transfer the stable patients to the primary health care sector, then we will make full use of our human resources in the community. That helps our manpower issue. The Legislative Council has passed a bill to double the plastic bag levy to $1 from December the 31st. Authorities will also scrap the existing levy exemption for frozen food and food items fully wrapped in non-airtight packaging. The exemption for unpackaged takeaway foods will, will remain, but will be limited to one plastic bag for each order. The authority of the British Prime Minister Liz Truss has been further undermined by the resignation of her Interior Minister Suella Braverman. In her resignation letter, Ms Braverman accused the Prime Minister of pretending there had been no mistakes and hoping that everything would magically come right. Later, two government ministers in charge of party discipline were rumoured to have resigned, but it has since been announced that they are to remain in post. Here's the BBC's Sean Lay. After a relatively successful Prime Minister's questions, she lost her Home Secretary, 
There was trauma over a vote, self-inflicted wounds, if you like, from the government. Was it a vote of confidence? Was it not a vote of confidence? The deputy chief whip and chief whip for several hours vanishing, apparently having resigned. Only in the last few minutes we find that they are still in post. The Russian-backed administration running the Ukrainian city of Kherson is fleeing the city along with its civilian population. Orders to evacuate have been issued as Ukrainian troops continue to advance through the region. The region's deputy governor, Kirill Stremusov, urged civilians to leave. Now, on the morning of the 19th of October, the situation on the front lines and approaches to the Kherson region is stable. The enemy is concentrating its forces and at any moment could begin to strike the civilian population of Kherson and the surrounding region. No one is going to retreat, but we also want to save your lives. Please move as quickly as possible to the left bank of the river. There'll be more news on the hour from RTHK. Morning. This is Back Chat for Thursday, October 20th. Welcome to the show. I'm Andrew Work. And I'm Janice Wong. On today's Back Chat, we're taking a closer look at John Lee's maiden policy address. One of the biggest announcements the chief executive made was an ambitious plan to ramp up public housing to cut the average waiting time from six years to four and a half years, all by 2027. The plan involves building more regular public housing plus a new kind of flat made from prefabricated components. It's been dubbed light public housing and could add some 30,000 homes over the next five years. We'll also focus on his plans to offer stamp duty rebates to newish residents and easier access to Hong Kong jobs to draw in elite overseas talent. We want to know what you think. You can leave a message on our Facebook page, Backchat on RTHK Radio 3. You can email us at backchat at rthk.hk or give us a call today at 233 Okay, we're uh, kicking off today's show. We've got some great guests for you, starting with Regina Ip, convener of the Executive Council and a new People's Party lawmaker. Good morning, Regina. Good morning, Andrew. Good, morning. Good to hear from you. Uh, John Burns, Emeritus Professor at the University of Hong Kong's Department of Politics and Administration. Good morning, John. Good morning. Morning. All right, welcome to the show. So uh, let's kick off. Regina Ip, give us your give us your favorites, your your best of this policy address. What did you like? highly comprehensive. It starts with uh, reforming the government's uh, uh, governance structures, you know, um, particularly the civil service. You know, it is introducing some uh, rewards for those who are in strengthening the reward and punishment system, enhancing trainings for civil servants, and enhancing the existing mobilization model, you know. All these shows that the government has tried, have revealed in the light of past performance, want to cure some long-standing ills. Uh, Regina, you've got a lot of history working in government. When you say mobilization model, what does that mean for people that aren't, you know, maybe not don't know the civil service lingo? It really means that, um, you know, judging from the experience of dealing with the, the, the fifth wave at its peak in February, March, um, the government, civil servants worked very hard, but they were they had difficulty mobilizing whole of the government to reach out to the affected people to help. 
In fact, a lot of the volunteers from the district, including our own party members and volunteers, had to fill the gaps, you know. So the, the government's uh, mobilization arrangements, or rather contingency arrangements, for dealing with um, large-scale natural disasters, you know, that sort of plan, uh, outdated, and the government needs to uh, launch a more effective whole-of-the-government mobilization model. All right. And, and Professor Burns, um, what about you? What's your assessment of uh, John Lee's maiden policy address? I mean, were there any surprises? Uh, yes, there were some surprises, but let me just uh, stand back and look at it a bit. Um, what struck me is how aligned the central government and local government priorities are. John Lee started out with security, and we know that uh, you know, for Xi Jinping, national security is number one. But the central government has also talked about the need to restore the economy, to integrate Hong Kong more closely with the GPA and with the mainland, and we saw all of that. We know from surveys that the Hong Kong people were expecting to see housing and health care uh, prominently in the policy address, and these things were both there. Secondly, um, I was impressed with the number and range of targets or KPIs which come in an annex to this to this um, uh, document. Now, now KPIs in general are a good thing, but these targets are a very mixed bag. Some of them are low-level activities, or we should explore this and that. But there are harder targets, as was mentioned in the news, such as, you know, uh, reducing waiting time for public housing flats. This is something that the, that the people's KPIs also have focused on. These things, you know, the intention of government to resume land, for example. We have done very little of that in the past, but 500 ha of private land is going to be resumed in five years. This is, uh, this is an amazing uh, discussion, uh, uh, pointing to the intention. No consequences for missing them, no consequences for achieving them. And who's accountable for keeping track of this? I mean, Regina is in Legco. I would like to see a big LED board in Legco that is tracking critical KPIs. Surprises, yes, for me there was one. The strategic direction um, in arts and culture. Now, I know that it's in the 14th five-year plan for Hong Kong. It's one of the eight centers. Uh, but this is the first time that, and we have some capacity here, but this is the first time that I have seen this. Do we have a political climate for this, you know, for creative films and streaming and things like this? This uh, we'll have to wait and see. Yeah, I mean, as you said, John, it's it's a very ambitious. It seems to me, it seems like a very ambitious policy address. A lot of hard targets, um, a lot of plans for development. Uh, Regina, if you kicked off by talking about the reform of the civil service, because I guess if you're going to hit all those ambitious targets, you're going to have to do things in a different way. There was also talk of regulatory changes to streamline some of these. What, what did you think of those kind of a, a pledge to 
you know, change environmental reviews, uh, planning and zoning laws? What, what did you make of that? I think the government has no choice but to review all these laws because they really in, involve a lot of highly cumbersome procedures, you know. Um, if the government doesn't go about reviewing the whole raft of laws under Development Bureau's purview and also the other environmental laws, environmental impact assessment ordinance, it will take decades before the government can do anything about Northern Metropolis. Yeah, and I mean, so, so I mean, in what order do these things have to happen? Does a review of the civil service and the and the uh, the regulatory review bodies have to happen first before these projects can really kick into high gear? Well, um, I haven't seen the, 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 the chief executive said the legislative amendments to the uh, legislation under the purview of the Development Bureau, um, like um, foreshore and seabed reclamation ordinance, road works use compensation ordinance, land resumption, or a whole raft of that will be submitted to LegCo by end of the year. And I've also heard from the Env- Environment Ecology Secretary, uh, Mr. J, that he will introduce a new environmental impact assessment procedure, uh, which would be compressed to one and a half years, you know. Uh, to cut back a lot of the backing and uh, toing and foing between the project proponent and the other objectors, like in the case of uh, resuming the nine-hectare fenling golf land. And as for the civil service, um, whatever reward punishment system the government is contemplating, you can't do it like the private sector, in the sense of you give more money to any team you know, the CE mentioned the red team. I don't know whether it's a blue team or super team who can build housing in record time. I don't think you can award it to one person. Um, because government also emphasizes teamwork, you know. If you single out a few individuals for uh, commendation, that could undermine teamwork, you know. So I think the best that the government could do is to promote by uh, in an accelerated way to accelerate those who are really performing or really motivated and to ease out those who are non-performing. And of course, in a civil service of 180, 190,000, we have always have some bad wood in government. The government always has some fat when you have a big organization like that. It means the government will have to look more carefully than before at who is performing and who is not performing and who wants to get out, you know, and to discipline people faster. Currently, disciplinary procedures could take a few years, you know. Again, going through very complicated, outdated colonial procedures. So the government also need to um, take a look at that. All right, and Mrs. Ebert, earlier Professor Burns, he, he was saying that uh, that LegCo should uh, have a role to play in uh, tracking the uh, KPIs uh, set out by the government. Uh, what's your view on that? Definitely. Uh, the bureau directors will be coming to see us as from next week, panel by panel, each secretary to explain uh, its uh, items, its projects in the policy address and open up the bureau to our questioning. 
And of course, we have regular panel meetings. You know, we will not lose sight of the government's promises, and we will follow up vigorously. All right. Yeah. So, I mean, is this, does this change? If we're going to change the nature of government, we're going to change the nature of the regulatory environment. Does it change the nature of LegCo as well as they as they look at this 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 you know this series of reforms that are going to be needed to hit these targets, John Burns? Listen, LegCo has in the past, I'm talking about especially C.H. Tome, held the government to account. I mean, we had we learned a lot from SARS one through an accountability system. But in my view, this accountability has atrophied over the years, and especially recently, it has been very weak. So I welcome uh, a restoration of legislative accountability, you know, accountability to the legislature. These KPIs and these targets, um, they put out there for the public and for the legislature uh, ways to evaluate what government is doing, and I am pleased to hear that LegCo will uh, strengthen this role. I think it has been weak for a long time, and I hope I wait to see this. All right. Uh, let's look at the measures to attract talent, uh, which make, which actually uh, makes up a, a significant part of the policy address. Um, Mrs. Ip, how effective do you think uh, the uh, special visa arrangements and tax concessions on the home purchases will be um, in helping to attract mainland and overseas uh, talent to work here? I think they are uh, very comprehensive. Should work should be quite effective in attracting uh, uh, outside talent. Basically, the government is doing what other governments have been doing, you know, um, attracting talent without requiring that uh, they already have job offers in Hong Kong. Uh, Our past regime has, in terms of bringing in people, has always been tied to jobs, you know, and we always require the employer in Hong Kong to show that they have recruitment difficulty. Now we are more, much more open, like other countries, Singapore, Canada, Britain. If you have a good degree, if you can prove, you, if you have proof of salaries at managerial level, and these are people we need, you can come. We give you a pass, you know. And uh, they don't have to already have jobs in Hong Kong. Uh, they can be in Hong Kong for two years, you know. So we are opting for, this is a major breakthrough. We are uh, opting for a much more open, aggressive regime, and we are going to provide service for them, you know, one-stop service like other countries to help them settle in, find schools for the children. So I think we should be able to turn things around. Uh, we're joined on the line now with Matthew Gollop, uh, one of our guests today, Managing Director at The Connected Group, uh, which is an executive search and recruitment firm here in Hong Kong. Uh, good morning, Matthew. Morning. 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 Uh, Matthew Gall, what did you make of the Hong Kong government's uh, policy, or not the government, but the, the policy address measures to attract new talent to Hong Kong? You're, you're talking to these people. Will they come? Um, I think broadly, people are still interested in Hong Kong as a location. You know, we still see interest from candidates overseas um, about what's going on in Hong Kong. We see interest from candidates looking to return to Hong Kong that have maybe been here before. Um, I'm just not sure that the, the the visa issue has been the barrier, um, and I'm unsure as to whether people will come to Hong Kong without a job offer anyway, just based on uh, 
um, the expensive nature of the location, maybe for more junior candidates that are looking to strike out early in their career. But I think one of the big challenges we have is in the is in the mid market. So um, that kind of um, you know mid manager up to senior manager, people with younger families. Um, I think that's probably the sort of the bigger challenge in terms of the volume of. Uh, vacancies that we see in the, in the market right now. Okay, I, I have one case in my, my close circle where somebody got transferred, their their bank transferred them down to Singapore. He didn't even move his wife and kids down, left them in school, and he's already got a new job with another bank because he didn't really want to leave in the first place. Is is there a lot of, is there, do you see a lot of that in the market? Um, in terms of people? Um, people who don't want to go. You know, even if, yeah. even if their companies are moving them, the people themselves don't necessarily want to leave. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think um, Hong Kong is, is still an attractive place to be um, for uh, for expats, certainly. Um, and um, we do see some anecdotal feedback from people who have relocated, um, who would like to come back, who miss Hong Kong. Um, you know, something different about the lifestyle here that, that, that still attracts people. So um, I think, you know, in terms of a, a location to attract talent, in terms of um, all of those positives of living here, they, they still remain. But I think that Probably the bigger problem is um, the sentiment of uh, employers around hiring non-Chinese speakers. Um, in my 21 years here, I've certainly seen that organisations have localised, and I think for, for some good reasons, for some um, uh, that has led to sort of a, a culturally ingrained um, approach to uh, only hiring um, Cantonese speakers, even not 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 even looking for Mandarin speakers. Um, and I think part of that just comes from the perception that previously expatriate employees, non-Chinese employees, must be paid more money associated with the old expatriate uh, packages, and, and companies look to kind of diminish that that sense. And it's now led to almost every job specification requiring um, Cantonese, I think in some cases where it may not. Um, and um, I think that sentiment needs to shift in order to open up to... Um, uh, you know, to other locations to, to bring talent in, particularly in technical areas and in technology where, where we see a real shortage right now. Yeah, there was even suggestions that there would be support for resident, like there would be residential support. Or, I wasn't quite clear on whether it was employees, uh, housing subsidies for, for very high-end uh, IT workers. John Burns, what, what was your take on the uh, the recruit talent to Hong Kong element of the policy address? Well, I, th I think in the near term we have some issues to resolve. I mean, nobody has mentioned the COVID control measures and the impact on freedom of movement. Oh, John, 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 before you get going. that, it doesn't, you know, you can have all of the regulatory changes that you want, but it's not going to have a big impact. I agree with those who see that the employment package itself and the career prospects, these are the things that will be able to attract uh, people to come to Hong Kong. So, yes, uh, you know, changing the rules, making it easier. They also need to examine internal procedures within, within, for example, the Immigration Department. So if these new organizations and agencies that are going to be set up can examine those and be sure that they are fit for purpose, then I think we have a greater chance of attracting and retaining talent. This, if you look at the talent issue in terms of the larger policy address, then the larger policy address is talking about strategic directions for Hong Kong. So we need to identify these clearly, 
these, uh, one of them is innovation, and um, the government has not spelled out exactly how its reindustrialization program is going to be rolled out. All of these larger macro issues, I think, if affect the environment uh, for talent, uh, talent creation and talent. Uh, uh, attraction and retention. Well, we had one one person who did mention about the uh, the COVID policy was Richard on our Facebook page. He says, and the big non-announcement was how we we're going to get out of this COVID theater mess. On Tuesday, we marked a thousand days since uh, the arrival of COVID in Hong Kong. We still have no plan. Um, you know, you've identified that's a big part of the immigration package. Regina, is, is, was a direction for like dealing with COVID really the appropriate place for policy address? I was thinking about it and I'm like, no, this could all be done in a month. <laughs> you know, maybe. Well, we, we already made a big step forward. We now have zero isolation, zero quarantine. You know, uh, for the first time in more than two years, this is already a big step forward. The chief executive has said time and again, we cannot give people a roadmap. Uh, without looking at the numbers, you know, because our approach is science-based, data-driven. Although we still have cases hovering around 5,000, the government is still taking bold steps to free up, you know, controls. Like, um, as from today, group gathering can be increased to 12. Live performers can sing and play again. And there'll be other, you know, measures uh, to... um, open up, you know. I think we we are on the way to opening up, but we do have to look at um, um, new, whether there are new sub-variants impacting on our public health system. But definitely, these controls won't be permanent. They are transitory measures, you know. And on attracting people, we not only have to overhaul our immigration policies, provide better service, uh, the government has also laid out two engines of growth for Hong Kong, tech development and finance. And on, on as far as finance is concerned, you know, there is a breakthrough measure in, in the sense, in the form of the government establishing a Hong Kong Investment Corporation Limited. Uh, this has been um, suggested by the financial sector for a long time. In effect, we are uh, setting up a special purpose vehicle, a fund for the purpose of investing in our future, mainly the infrastructural projects. And the government will be stepping up its effort to develop FinTech, to go out for family offers, to do uh, increased market accessibility with mainland China. So there's a lot of business going for Hong Kong. And we are introducing a more open system um, in line with uh, boosting these businesses. We need talent to do these businesses. And we are opening up our immigration system to attract the right people. Right. Mm-hmm. Now, now, a lot of the uh, large part of the policy address was focused on attracting a talent. What about uh, um, ways to retain local talent? I mean, do you think uh, enough was uh, said about that? Mrs. Ip. Um, they, I understand the, the people leaving are mostly the 30-something, the mid-level people. The well-established people, they won't leave. Young people don't meet the requirements for departure unless they have very good degrees, you know. As for our locals, um, we need to train that up. We need to give them a better future. And this has a lot to do with 
education, training, and skills upgrading. And I'm pleased to see from this policy address much more emphasis on vocational training. You know, I have been concerned for a long time about the over-expansion of the tertiary sector, especially the self-funded sector, uh, which provides a lot of courses with a lot of overlap, and a lot of these self-funded institutions are actually heavily subsidized by government. Some of them only have 100 students, you know, not the scale of a proper college. Mm. So I think the government has, is aware of this and is encouraging more young people to take up vocational education, to go into programs for training people that we need. You know. People, we need. Uh, I'm looking at all this, all this activity planned for the next few years. Uh, Matthew Gollop, as we go to the top of the hour, are you are you beefing up your uh, recruitment division, focused on engineers and people in the construction sector? Because I mean, uh, it seems like there's going to be a lot of building happening. For, forget IT workers and all that. We're going to need guys who know how to build things. Yeah, absolutely. We um, uh, we we do see that as a as a growth area, both um, engineering from the um, from the technical um, end, um, you know, manufacturing um, uh, and engineering. Uh, we definitely see that opening up, and once the border opens up and the, the Greater Bay piece um, uh, kicks in, then um, certainly uh, on that end um, we'll be very busy. And then construction, uh, property, real estate, absolutely. I think it's been a strong market this year. I think local developers have been um, much more active compared to previous years in, in recruitment and, and will continue to be so. All uh, right. Particularly with the northern development as well. Sure. Well, we'll, look, we'll uh, keep an eye on that. We're going to talk some more about uh, the development aspects in particular and housing uh, after the break. For the news, uh, with that, I'd like to thank our first panel of guests, Regina Ipp, the convener of the Executive Council, New People's Party lawmaker, John Burns, Emeritus Professor of the University of Hong Kong's Department of Political Politics and Administration, and Matthew Gollop, Managing Director from Connected Group. Quick hit on the weather. Sunny periods, uh, max temperature around 27 degrees today. It's going to be nice. Uh, people enjoy it. The temperatures right now is 23 degrees Celsius, 58% humidity. This is Back Chat with Andrew Work and Janice Wong. whole fresh panel of guests to talk about uh, the policy address. Uh, we're welcoming Jason Lung, a researcher from our Hong Kong Foundation, Vera Yuan, lecturer, Faculty of Business and Economics, University of Hong Kong, and Anthony Wong, business director of the Hong Kong Council of Social Service. Good morning to everybody. Good morning. morning. Good morning. We got morning. a couple... Good morning. We got a couple of emails here. Uh, Rick sent us an email and says, "Interesting, as how they've shown they can build prison camps. So building a few thousand quick fix housing estates must be a doddle." I think he means quarantine, <laughs> but you know. Uh, another one here from Mark. Uh, Mark says, "I think John Lee's policy address was very good and upbeat. However, it appears to be overly ambitious with infrastructure development, which could, which would take at least twenty to thirty years to complete." Let's kick off. Uh, Anthony Wong. It is an ambitious policy address. It does seem like we're going to have cranes and concrete all over Hong Kong for uh, years to come. What, do, do you think it's too ambitious? Is it too much? Or is it, you know, it's politics. You promise 100%, maybe you get 80%. You're doing pretty good. Well, I think, I think from the perspective of a society, I think a lot of uh, people in Hong Kong would expect that uh, the government would do something, particularly on the issue on housing. And I would think that, uh, I mean, the uh, message that they've uh, the, uh, the chief executive has proposed. It's uh, it's uh, uh, really uh, you know 
kind of responding to this kind of uh, expectation from the society. Whether it is too ambitious, I think it, I, I'm happy to see that the government has shown some uh, determination of, for example, uh, building more housing units and, you know, uh, shorten the time of waiting for the public rental housing and, and you know, creating more uh, lanes uh, for building more public rental housing and also other pr uh, private housing as well. And also in terms of the quality of the housing, I think these measures, I think people have been expecting for long. And at least uh, uh, the government has shown some determination. Whether it can be realized, we'll have to wait and see. All right. Mr. Wong, I know earlier you suggested uh, the government should, uh, transform COVID uh, isolation facilities into transitional housing, but that idea uh, has not been included in the policy address. Um, are you disappointed? Uh, not really, but I think the government has been thinking about how to converting those facilities into uh, housing and transitional housing. I don't think the, uh, that the uh, policy address has mentioned that it would, would indicate that the government is not going to do that. I think they've been, you know, you know, thinking about how to do this. Uh, but uh, we're happy that uh, at least uh, there will be some what they call the light public housing units. I think this increase of uh, uh, universal housing may be able to uh, alleviate the uh, living environment uh, problem of the people living in subdivided units. We are happy to see that. Yeah, um, we have this target put out there, uh, reducing the waiting time for public housing from six to four and a half, four and a half years. I mean, uh, personally, I'm a little skeptical. I think the, the more public housing you make it, the more acceptable it is, the nicer you make it, the more demand there is. And you just get more and more people to think, hey, why not? Um, I mean, I mean, is, is the chief executive given, has he done himself a disservice by putting a target out there that might not be obtainable? Just no, I think, I think the quality of the public housing would not, you know, I, I, don't, I don't, because there are objective, you know, allocation criteria. I mean, you know, you have to be eligible for applying for public housing. Uh, that is determined by the income and, you know, and wealth of the, of the applicants. I don't think, you know, people, people will be, you know, attracted by the quality. And in any case, uh, even the uh, ordinary or traditional uh, public rental housing unit, it's not anything fancy to attract people to, you know, pushing up the demand of public rent housing. I don't think that would happen. Very hard to get them out. Janice? All right. Uh, the, the last time um, Hong Kong saw a uh, waiting time for public housing of under four years, I, I think it was uh, back in maybe 2016. Um, Mr. Leung, would you say Mr. Lee's uh, plan to cut public housing waiting time to four and a half years is an, is an aggressive plan? Well, I definitely think that it's an aggressive plan uh, because we have seen that the public housing waiting time has been uh, increasing over the past uh, few years. Uh, however, I think uh, setting this target is a, uh, a good start because at least it comes something and there is a, a realistic uh, or at least an aggressive benchmark to start with. Uh, in the past, uh, the housing authority has repeatedly you know, said that they will keep the three-year target set by uh, Mr. Tong, our first chief executive, uh, back in the 90s. But everyone knows that it's not going to be done. But, you know, it's just going to be repeated and repeated year, year over year again. Um, but without any realistic uh, plan to achieve that. Now that he's set 
set it in four and a half years. I think it's uh, aggressive, but I think it's doable because uh, firstly, um, the backloaded supply is going to arrive soon. And secondly, the, the complement of that is the light public housing, which at uh, 30,000 is a substantial amount of uh, housing units that will be completed in the next five years. However, our concern is that, you know, given uh, the housing authority and the housing society, they are already required to substantially raise the pro uh, production capacity for the traditional uh, public rental housing. If they are asked to do another 30,000 light rental housing in the next five years, I have some concerns about their ability to cope. Yeah, I've got an email here that kind of, uh, you know, looks at multi-factor uh, issues influencing each other. He says, uh, David says, you have all these infrastructure projects, but you don't have enough construction workers. Then, so you up the salary by 10 to 12% causing inflation, and you're going to bring in a lot more workers, which means there's going to be a lot less housing and higher rent. Uh, you also plan to let professionals buy property. That means the price of property will go up instead of down. And making, um, I think he's trying to say that it, making it less affordable for middle-class families. And then he has a comment about nurses. But I mean, this, 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 uh, this idea that you know, driving all this demand is going to drive property prices up. Uh, is, is that going to be a problem? Well, I think uh, uh, there is definitely valid concerns. I think uh, the chief executive balance is out with, you know, increasing the uh, supply of land regarding uh, private housing for the next few years. Uh, he actually promised uh, land for private housing supply that is beyond uh, and above the uh, long-term housing strategy. And I think that will uh, help uh, to do, uh, you know, to uh, sort of uh, release the anticipated rise in housing prices. Uh, secondly, uh, regarding, uh, you know, these you know, foreign talents and things like that, uh, there is still the uh, stand duty in place, uh, although you know, they can ask for a return in, uh, after seven years. But I think that still serves as a, you know, uh, a control you know, the overheating of the housing prices. Very young. What's your what's your take on this this policy address as a uh, you know a growth a growth direction for Hong Kong? Well, I would say that for the public housing policy, they, or and also the development for the development part, uh, they have um, named some schedule. I would say I'm not sure whether they're milestones as the KPI saying that they would do something in 2024 and then do another thing in 2025 and etc. cetera, community. So those are not really KPI because it does not measure the outcome. But they are quite bold to say that uh, they are going to shorten the public housing queue by uh, 1.5 years in four years' time. And then to increase the production of public housing units. But uh, I think there's a little bit of trick there is they create a new housing class that is uh, below the public rental housing that is called light public housing. And they're creating one more step, zero, below step one, which is actually public rental housing. And that one, uh, I, it would take shorter time because uh, it requires a lower standard of uh, fabrication and finishing. So they are trying to say and to fulfill the pledge of raising uh, the supply of units and production by, you know, creating this new class which requires shorter time. So I, I, I'm not 
quite sure whether it's uh, genuine because um, for shortening the housing queue, uh, people living in like public housing, they, they are still on the queue and they would proceed to the next step, which is the public rental housing. So the major uh, contribution to the shortening of time would be coming from um, advanced allocation scheme that is trying to allocate people before that the public housing were actually ready at today's standard, which is actually lowering the standard again. Um, but then the stocks, I think in the next five years would be pretty fixed. It, it, they couldn't stretch a lot. I mean, they can stretch it by the MIC approach, and, and also they said the design and view thing, that it, instead of having it designed and then have the, uh, the construction in separate bidding, they would do it in the same tendering. But um, I think it's good that they have a plan and they're pretty concrete on, on what kind of methods they would achieve this. But then um, the track record of these government is uh, they failed to achieve the goal that they set. That in the past uh, administration, uh, they only fulfilled about 60 to 70 percent of the goal. So I think this government have to distinguish themselves by their execution power. I mean, 60 to 70 percent, you know, whether uh, for most governments around the world, that's not bad, actually. <laughs> I mean, you know, no, polit- know politicians know. promise. I, yeah, okay. <laughs> You know, politicians propose and reality disposes, uh, you know, so, but, but you, you think that with the, but I mean, we have very hard targets here that is un, unusual. Yes, because this is posed as the most important program of Hong Kong by the, uh, by Xia which, which is an important person, which is the senior, like senior supervisor of this mm-hmm. So uh, they, they think that they, so this thing, they already plan to have, a, you know, a hot spot battle on this. So they have this whole plan done, uh, which is very concrete to see whether they can make it. But after four years, it's like the end of their term already. So they will be evaluated. But I'm quite disappointed that um, they only think about supply and all these construction stuff. And that's because the head of a housing bureau herself is an architect. She knows, um, I don't think she knows a lot about uh, the allocation policy, but there are a lot that can be done in the allocation in speeding up um, uh, public housing, uh, the queue that is to kick away people who abuse the public housing and also to improve the livelihood of people that people who travel from, you know, Toon Moon to Kauri Bay for work every day, and it, it takes them like four hours a Ooh. day. And then it's like that. There are ways that we can uh, improve the efficiency and the utility of the use of houses, make people look better. But I think we have, you know, I, re- I wrote a paper and then published it uh, a month ago, but I don't think the government wants to consider anything in terms of the efficiency, the allocation to improve their life. They only focus on increasing the supply. But for, for the supply, uh, as you said, the standard has been lower. And then they only care about, you know, stopping people into some units. And then they think that they have done their work. I think we need to think more and there are better ways of using the same number of resources so we can have, like, better lives. Right. Mr. Wong, I mean, uh, Vera Yun here, she just uh, mentioned that uh, live public housing will just uh, create a new housing class. Um, do you think that's a problem? Uh, I think we have already got one. Well, I'm not sure whether we should call it uh, a new housing class. 
but at the moment we have what we call the transitional housing, right? And now we have the government has already committed and actually got land to build uh, to uh, twenty thousand units already. So uh, I think this light public housing is more or less like transitional housing. I think in terms of in fact, in terms of the internal, I mean, the interior kind of uh, renovation and facilities, I don't think there can be anything that they can do to simplify. The, the whole thing about like public housing, I guess, I don't understand the detail within the government, but I guess that it is uh, more about the community facilities because at the moment when you build a new public rental housing estate, you have to, you know, you know take care of the... Uh, you know, public space and the wind and all these uh, facilities and all that. But uh, in, like what we are doing on transitional housing project, I think a lot of lands are just, you know, used temporarily. And for most of the piece of lands uh, that we have been using, I think we do not have any capacity to build any community facilities. And that's why I think that even though the uh, uh, we welcome that there are 30,000 units to be built uh, using this like public housing approach. But we think that uh, the government should try to uh, consider uh, that uh, the, uh, the operation of the transitional housing, the mode of operation should be adopted. That is to say that uh, a lot of tenants moving from the subdivided units to this transitional housing or like public housing, They've been living in the subdivided units for a very long time, and they've been suffering from social isolation for a long time. So uh, in our experience in running the transitional housing, we have all this community support service, trying to build the network and mutual support among tenants. And, and these operations are all done by NGOs. I think that the government should you know, consider how to leverage on the capacity or finance the uh, NGOs to provide this community support service and then try to try to help uh, to increase the living capacity of the uh, tenants so that after later on when they are moved to uh, public rental housing, they can live in the community independently and truly, uh, you know, uh, getting out of poverty. That is what we wish uh, the government should do. Yeah. Jason Long, what do you, what do you, uh, what's the view from the Our Hong Kong Foundation? Well, I think the uh, light public housing itself uh, is a compromise in uh, desperate times because we, uh, we can see that the government is really uh, determined to raise the uh, uh, supply uh, in the short term. However, if we were to do it in the traditional way, uh, as in the traditional uh, public rental housing, then again, we'll go back to the uh, backloaded supply pattern as uh, we have faced uh, in the past few years. So um, we think that uh, well, certainly in terms of uh, quality of living, the like public housing is not the best thing around. But um, in terms of uh, security for the tenants, it is still a step up from the subdivided housing uh, that they are currently living in. So. Um, uh, we think that uh, this is a policy worth uh, doing as a short-term remedial solution. Right, and then and then transition them into more traditional public housing. Is there any sense that uh, public housing in Hong Kong itself is going to change? I mean, you know, whenever the conversation comes up, people compare it to public housing in Singapore, uh, which is a very different model. 
But is there any sense that the you know more permanent public housing is going to change in terms of its quality or character? So far, we have not seen a change in the government's attitude. Um, you know, it's uh, say, uh, for example, to mimic the Singaporean way of doing public housing. Because first, uh, in Singapore, uh, the, own, uh, the emphasis is on uh, home ownership. However, you know, in Hong Kong, a majority of uh, these public housing units are just for rental. Uh, so these are tenants instead of homeowners. And uh, uh, secondly, uh, in Singapore, every uh, citizen can have uh, the right to uh, you know, uh, buy their own uh, HDB flats once in a lifetime. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes, well, we see in Hong Kong you have a similar thing with the HOS, but uh, there are, of course, many more restrictions that uh, compared to the Singaporean model. So, uh, in short, you know, we see that the uh, thinking uh, of the Hong Kong FDR government is still to merely increase the supply rather than to change the structure or the quality of uh, uh, public housing altogether. We, we don't see that changing at all for now. Gotcha. So changing, changing gears. Oh, sorry, Anthony, did you want to get in there? Yeah, but, uh, but I think the, there is one thing that we may consider to change in terms of provision of public rental housing is the operation of, of the public rental housing, as I said. Uh, and also the chief executive has already introduced a concept of well-being. Uh, they have what, they call, what he called the well-being guidelines. I think that is a new concept that could be uh, uh, implemented in terms of how we should not just, you know, like managing housing units like what we have been doing. Uh, we should consider how the tenants living there uh, could feel that by living in public rental housing, their well-being, social well-being can be enhanced. And as I said, the, uh, the community support service will be very important. I think the government should consider integrating even uh, this uh, element of uh, community support service into the public rental housing operation model. Right. Uh, I was also thinking about this, but I counted that there are 800,000 units in Hong Kong. So how much resources do you think we can support 800,000 households with your social services? It's a big no, I think uh, at the moment, uh, the government has actually uh, been doing something on the newly built public uh, rental housing. Uh, there is a community invest, uh, inclusion and investment fund funding a support team to uh, try to enhance the uh, community capacity and facilitate mutual help and network among tenants in the newly built public rental housing. I think these kind of things can be can really be uh, implemented. In all, we are not talking about like every household will have to be supported. We are doing it like a community work approach. Like you have a team of, uh, you know, a dozen workers and then serving in a one public, big public rental housing unit. I think this can be something that can, I don't think there's any difficulty for government to finance this kind of uh, work. All right. I just want to shift the focus uh, slightly. Um, Ms. Yoon, in the first half of uh, our program, we talked about uh, measures to attract talent, um, overseas talent who, who um, enter Hong Kong under talent attraction schemes, uh, um, buy a residential property and become a permanent residence, uh, will be able to apply for a refund of a buyer's stamp duty and uh, 
new residential stamp duty for their property. Um, what sort of impact do you think it, it uh, might have uh, on the property market? You mean this uh, refunding of VSD? Yes. Uh, pretty useless. Because for, I, I mean, not many people would actually do such thing. Uh, you know, if we attract talents, uh, the number one most important thing for foreigners or mainlanders to come would be career prospects. So it, it's really not about like being able to buy houses with refunds. Because, you know, people, foreigners, when they go to a new city, they rent first and then they would see whether they want to stay. So they wouldn't buy it at first. And then you also have to prepay that huge amount of money and then you need to wait seven years to get it back. So what if you would want to leave in the middle? Then you're trapped. So the only only people who will be benefited from this would be people who are trapped. Like, if, if there are people who want to stay and then they would consider buying them, they, they would probably stay later. So this is not attractive at all, and not, not many people would actually buy this, uh, you know, through, through this game. So it wouldn't affect the property market very much. Mm. Uh, in other parts of the economy, I mean, there's a lot of talk about development and what the government's going to do. Was there any sense of, uh, you know, freeing up the private sector to do more to help achieve some of these goals? Did you did you pick up on anything on that from the policy address? So you? What are the specific goals that you want me to answer? Any anything anything that would help the, you know kind of uh, free up the private sector to become more efficient? I mean, the talk is all government's going to do this, government's going to do that. Uh, there, it didn't. I didn't get a message that there was, you know, a big role for the private sector uh, other than trying to get some new IT workers in. Um, I think for private sectors, because the government is not at a position to tell them what to do, if it is really at the position, it would be complex socialism. Mm. Or communism, it's not a planned economy, so the government can only say that, that much that they would do and they hope to facilitate and to have many you know talent to come and uh, i think i think it's pretty normal and then when they say they want to you know find 100 top companies you know like in some sectors to come i'm not sure what are they going to do to attract them because i think people in business if they were to come again you need uh, a cluster a network a whole environment to cultivate them so that they think that they're good opportunities here they want to come if, if they if they don't find good opportunities and they have other opportunities in other metropolitan and then that their opportunity cost is very high and then, and then they don't want to come and without the whole network of talents and companies um you know no people wouldn't be coming and many of these talent schemes uh, many of them is like they eat the barrier but they eat the barrier for the most competitive people which right. means uh they, they wouldn't have to come anyway i mean if they want to come they can come anyway so the only consequence and the only thing that would happen would be uh, people from the mainland China who have no opportunity to go to any elsewhere in the world. But and then and then they can come to Hong Kong. So it's not the most competitive people that would come to Hong Kong. Right, Jason. Uh, Jason Lung, what's your quick take on uh, the private sector? Well, we picked up one uh, with the pilot scheme on uh, private developer participation in subsidised housing development. Uh, you know that is the government uh, encouraging private de uh, developers to apply for rezoning of their own private land for uh, subsidized of land development. Uh, we think that there is a good start. However, we do anticipate some issues uh, uh, related to a lack of uh, infrastructure capacity because, you know, uh, this is a similar thing to the land sharing pilot scheme that was raised by the previous administration. 
Uh, however, uh, despite the five applications received, uh, all five, uh, you know, has not been approved because of, uh, you know, infrastructural capacity constraints. Uh, so we see that these problems have not been solved, and yet the government is uh, launching a new scheme uh, regarding subsidized housing. So we do need to see if the, the government will, you know, do anything to change uh, regarding this scheme. Uh, otherwise, we, we are slightly concerned that uh, this new pilot scheme would end up facing the same predicament as the previous uh, land sharing pilot scheme. Okay. Uh, well, that's great. We've had a good talk here. Thank you very much uh, to Jason Lung, researcher from the Hong Kong Foundation, closing us out to Vera Yun, a lecturer at the Faculty of Business and Economics, University of Hong Kong, and Anthony Wong, business director of Hong Kong Council of Social Service. Thanks for joining us. Right, that's been back chat for your Thursday. We had a couple of comments about the new Cantonese uh, Cantonese language requirements. Uh, you can check those out in our Facebook page. Unfortunately, our, our recruiter was in the first half of the show. The questions came in a little late. Uh, we'd also like to remind everybody to check into our show on tomorrow. We're going to have the chief executive himself, and you can phone in. Jim Gould and Janice Wong are going to be uh, handling that. So please do. Get your questions ready. Be ready to call in. Thanks for calling, listening, getting in touch today. Thanks to Yuki and Sam in the sound booth. And we'll give you a quick hit on the weather today. Sunny periods, max temperature 27 degrees. Uh, right now it is uh, nice and high to dry out there. Good weather to come. Since influenza activity has been low in recent years, immunity against the flu virus could be reduced. With more frequent travel and social interactions, the risk of contracting flu could increase greatly. Getting the flu jab can boost immunity against the flu virus and reduce the risks of severe complications and death. Don't drop your guard against flu, especially for persons aged 50 or above, children, pregnant women, and residents of residential care homes. Don't wait. Get a jab. Keep flu away. Time is now 9.30 and the news with Barry O'Rourke. A global mobility firm says Chief Executive John Lee should have announced measures in yesterday's policy address to kickstart the economy if he wants to attract talent and businesses to Hong Kong. Lee Quain, the regional director for ECA International, also said current COVID restrictions kept companies away because they couldn't easily access the mainland and regional markets. The chairman of the Lang Kwai Fong Group,